Broadcasting from Baltimore, Maryland, and all around the world, you're listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. Tune in each Thursday on iTunes for the latest episodes of the Stansberry Investor Hour. Sign up for the free show archive at InvestorHour.com. Here is your host, Dan Ferris. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm the editor of Extreme Value, a value investing service published by Stansberry Research. So let's get to it and see what's been happening lately in the world. Now, as you know, we have been discussing these uh, several weeks, a few topics that I would like to revisit. One of them is the auto industry. I don't know if you remember, gosh, maybe six or eight podcasts ago, we talked about how auto sales were off. And of course, you know, the auto industry is kind of a, it's an economic bellwether. It's kind of something that you want to keep track of from the top down. And this week we see kind of a, the, the, the way that cars are being sold is changing. Just, you know, the way everything is being sold is changing. And specifically what's happening is every year in Detroit, every January, January in Detroit, if you could imagine somebody decided that was a good idea, they have this thing called the North American International Auto Show. And all the big car companies, all of them come every year and show off their latest model. Well, this year, okay, uh, here's the list. Audi, BMW, Mercedes, Volvo, Porsche, Jaguar, Land Rover, Mitsubishi, and Mini are not coming to the, to the Detroit Auto Show this year. Now, part of this might, you know, they think, well, you know, some car companies are choosing to go to the Consumer Electronics Show, which was held recently in Las Vegas. You know, it's... Um, it's more focused on, uh, you know, newfangled electronic and, you know, just technology products and cars are increasingly going that way. So it makes a little bit of sense. Plus it's in Las Vegas and it's warm and nice and you can have outdoor demonstrations. So the organizers of the Detroit auto show are going to move it from January to June next year. But, uh, this one fellow, Jeremy Acevedo, who is a auto industry analyst, uh, at, Edmunds.com, and you can look up Edmunds on, on the internet. It's just auto industry analysts. And he says that really the auto show model itself has a finite shelf life and is kind of, you know, getting near its expiration date. And, you know, the way we buy everything is changing. And I, you know, this is one of the good things about Tesla, which we'll talk about also in just a minute. You know, they, they have a different model for selling their cars. You know, and they don't have this dealership model where they kind of give somebody a little, you know, kingdom. They don't give somebody the Tesla kingdom in a given area and eliminate competition. Um, they just sell them like you'd sell anything, you know, in strip malls and various places. So which is good. I mean, that's a net benefit. I don't think Tesla's going to make it as a business, but it's a net benefit for the consumer. And it's more evidence that the way people buy things has just changed permanently, um, more evidence in that general category. And in the general category, the retail apocalypse, which we keep, you know, kind of revisiting every now and then is Jimbery, the children's clothing store. They're planning to file bankruptcy soon, uh, within days, maybe this week, uh, and possibly close all 900 stores, 900 stores. Now they have another little business called, uh, it's called like Jack and Janie. I think it's like a higher end hiring children's clothing. Not sure what that looks like. I guess people can spend a lot of money on anything, including kids' clothing. They're going to try to sell that before the bankruptcy as part of the process. But, you know, again, there's a, at any given time, right, there's a limited amount of economic resources around. And, you know, when more resources and capital go into one thing, there's a, what they call creative destruction that happens in, in the old way. So, you know, we're selling more things online. We're selling fewer things in physical stores. And this, this process of uh, creative destruction continues in, in the retail world. And, of course, the, the, the big story here um, in retail has been Sears, hasn't it? We've talked about this a bunch of times. And I feel like we've been in the 11th hour of the Sears bankruptcy. You know, will Eddie Lampert save the company? 
uh, question for weeks now. I thought the, the deadline was had come and gone at least once. But finally, this morning, uh, a deal has been reached and Lambert's going to buy, I think, about 425 stores will remain open after uh, after it's all said and done. And this is um, it depends on a hearing that will take place on February the 1st in New York. But the judge at the hearing, he has encouraged Lampert to make an offer and save the company and save jobs and all that. So, you know, maybe the hearing is just sort of a, an administrative matter at this point. Um, but Sears, you know, they had 700 stores when they declared bankruptcy in October, and then they closed 200 of them, and now they're going to stay in business with maybe 425. So the news is saying this morning. Um, but, you know, you know how I feel about this. You know how I feel about Sears. It was always a bad idea to to base an investment company like Berkshire Hathaway around a retailer. You just can't do it. You know, the, the Berkshire Hathaway is based on an insurance company, and that balance sheet has liabilities that are really like assets, right? It's got the insurance float, which is all the money paid in from all the insurance policies that eventually may have to be paid out again one day. So it has to be on the balance sheet as a liability, but it acts like cheap financing. Sometimes if you make money selling insurance, it's like you're being paid to borrow money with all the float. And that is a source of, of leverage in Berkshire Hathaway. And some people estimate leverage of about 1.6 to 1 over the long term has helped Berkshire Hathaway's returns. Whereas Sears has, you know, at this point, I don't know exactly how much. There's $7 billion of assets in the bankruptcy. And, you know, one of the big ones is inventory, which is a, the opposite, right? It's a an asset that acts like a liability because it's just retail inventory. It can go obsolete any minute and have to be marked down 50, 60, 70, 80%. So that model was always doomed, and I said so in Extreme Value back in 2012, and it's just been down, down, down ever since. I think they had like 2,600 stores in 2006. Now they're down to 400. Crazy. And this is all, you know, this, um, uh, at least the retail stuff, it just feels very uh, fin de siècle, you know, end of the cycle. And a lot of the, I feel like a lot of the news, maybe I just gravitate towards that type of news here on the podcast, but a lot of it has been kind of end of cycle-ish. Um, so, you know, speaking of car companies, as we were a minute ago, of course, we, we always have to talk about Tesla because it's uh, it's such a crazy situation. We had a great discussion with uh, Mark Spiegel, a Tesla short, a couple of podcasts ago. We got a lot of good feedback on that. So please visit our archives, investorhour.com, and, and check that out. Um, of course, after you listen to this one, right? And so Tesla, what, what one of Mark's big points was that Tesla is facing, among other problems, among, you know, it, it's a it's a crazy business, right? It's highly capital intensive. You got to spend a lot of money and invest a lot of capital before you make $1 of sales. Low margins, just really difficult. Uh, and on top of that, of course, um, such businesses tend to be highly, highly competitive. And that was one of Spiegel's big points when he came on the show. He says, you know, the, the competition is just coming out of the woodwork from real car companies, real car companies that have been around for decades who know how to make money selling cars, which Tesla does not know how to do yet. And the latest one, of course, Volkswagen um, announced this week, what they're going to do is invest something like $50 billion. They plan to commit 50 billion, close to 50 billion anyway, you know, through 2023 toward the development and production of electric vehicles. And, you know, the kind of the digital services that go with the electric vehicles. And uh, they're going to, you know, spend an 800 million to expand one of their US factories in Tennessee, and they're going to produce out of that factory, their next generation of electric vehicles. So, you know, I mean, VW, Tesla has to compete with VW. It's a little insane. Speaking of Elon Musk ventures like Tesla, um, SpaceX, you know, that that's his, uh, his rocket ship company. He wants to, he wants to go to Mars. <laughs> He's got this rocket ship company where they're going to try to make space travel just a regular thing like, you know, any other type of travel. Um, 
So they're not doing so great. Of course, SpaceX, um, you know, the, the, the technology, um, Mark Spiegel discussed this as well. You know, it, one of his points was that Musk has a reputation as this genius who does all these big projects. But, you know, if you talk to people who like really know about each of these things like rockets and other things, like Musk is not exactly on the cutting edge. The only thing that's cutting edge about any of it is that he's trying to make businesses out of these things, right? Um, so SpaceX is letting go of around 10% of its of its workforce. Um, and, you know, they had an all-hands-on meeting on Friday at SpaceX headquarters in, in Hawthorne. And um, they're going to restructure. And, you know, restructure is always a, you know, it's a buzzword. It means, you know, we screwed up. Things went against us. We've got to... We've got to scramble and fix this and try to save it. And part of that is by firing 10% of the employees, and they're going to be left with about 6,400 uh, after they restructure. And again, you know, highly capital-intensive business that um, you know you're basically, in a way, you're competing with NASA, but not really. I mean, you're just the technology. NASA's way way ahead of you on technology. Just put it that way. So, wow, it, it sounds like all the news is bad. Um, and it's, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Um, but, you know, th there, there are a few other things that aren't exactly pleasant that I feel like I should address. Now, look, you know me, you know I'm not crazy about politics, but I just feel like I should mention sometimes some of the noisier issues, right? I mean, I, you know, Look, this is the investor hour and I'll, and it's about investing. So don't worry about that. I'm not going to become like political, but I just feel like investors wonder about the noisier political issues and two of them right now, the two kind of noisiest ones to me, um, the first one is Brexit, right? So, uh, Theresa May's bid to kind of work out a deal to separate the UK from the European Union failed and and it's alleged that she's facing a vote of no confidence and and the news the speculation in the news is that this if it's what they call a hard brexit and no deal is worked out to make this transition smooth uh, that millions of people you know a million people will lose their jobs and it'll be absolutely a disaster for the UK economy You'll never hear me say that I know that that is the case, okay? One way or the other. And that is my point. I think when you, you know, you tune into the news, they need to keep you tuned in so they can sell you things in between news on the commercials. So they're going to try to make it as exciting as possible. And exciting usually means dire. You know, it usually means, oh, it's an emergency. It's a crisis. We don't, you know, things are going to be terrible. Things could be terrible. And things could be. I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. And I think anybody who, who does think they know how it's going to turn out is probably wrong, right? You don't know the future. And I just, here's, here's the thing. I, I liken this to certain financial events, and I could be wrong in that. But I liken it to things like, um, you know, the 2008 crisis, right? The talk back then was if the government didn't step in and fix everything, and, you know, make a deal with all the banks and all this stuff that it would have been the Great Depression 2.0 and, and things would have been much worse than they actually have been since then. I don't know that that is the case. And in fact, we know that when you refuse to sort of let the market work these things out, you create more problems. In fact, you could even argue that you create more problems than you solve. What you do is you solve short-term problems and you create larger long-term ones. And long-term doesn't last forever. And that's sort of how I feel about Brexit. Maybe there will be a so-called hard Brexit. Maybe there will be some unemployment resulting from that, right? If you're not allowed to trade with another country anymore, if there's some stupid law in place that says, you know, now that you're not part of the European Union, you can't do trade with companies in, in Europe anymore, you may have to lay off some workers. I mean, that's a travesty. I think that's that's uh, a sign that government is too deeply involved in all of all of the commerce between these entities, between these areas, these geographical areas, uh, and not that there's too little. 
And I think if there's less, there is short-term pain and long-term gain. And, you know, I feel the same way about um, the other noisy, noisy, noisy political issue, which is alleged to, you know, be a potentially big economic problem, which is the border wall. I'm so tired of hearing about this. Look, it's real simple. Without a giant welfare state, you don't need to protect your borders that way, right? And without drug prohibition, you don't need to worry about your borders in the same way that we worry about them now. So again, you know, is there too much government involved in these things or too little? That's that, and I'm leaving you with the question, okay? I, I'm not... Um, I'm not going to say that I know how it works out. I mean, there are, there are real costs to these things. You know, they're, they're, right now the government is in a shutdown. And for example, like um, the Delta CEO, CEO of Delta Airlines, right? Biggest airline in the world by market cap and total assets, if I'm not very much mistaken. And they say that the government shutdown is going to cost them $25 million this month. $25 million in revenue due to, you know, the partial government shutdown. Um, you know, longest ever government shutdown, 800,000 federal workers furloughed or working without pay. Um, so there are, look, I'm not saying there aren't real economic consequences and then in turn real consequences for investors from these things. But just as a general principle, we sure do interfere a great deal with commerce around the world and we tend to blame it on not we don't we blame it on capitalism we don't blame it on government often enough in my opinion you know i think healthcare is exactly the same way when there are 16 or i, I forget what the number is now but at one point it was 16 administrative people involved in every transaction between you and your doctor that's a problem that's why it's so expensive and it got that way, you know, over time, there were things like, you know, in World War II, labor was scarce, men were fighting in wars, you know, so there was less labor here at home, and there were wage controls, so you, you couldn't offer to pay people more, so what did you do? Well, you offered to give them uh, health care, and, and that, that is one way that that got started as a, just a, you know, normal thing that employers do. And, that you know, you needed to offer more and more benefits over time to stay competitive because people expected it. And, and now you've got 16 administrators involved in every single transaction between you and your doctor and people wondering about the high cost of health care. And there's too much government involved in these things. Not, not enough. There's too much regulations. Not, not enough. And there are real you know, there are some real consequences for investors. But like I said, I'm going to get off the soapbox here because I don't want to I don't want people to say, oh, my God, he's going political. OK, um, so let's just kind of, uh, you know, I'll just sort of sort of move on. <laughs> All right. And just the last item I want to get to that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Airbnb says it's been profitable for two years straight. Uh, as they head into their upcoming uh, IPO, um, they, you know, they, they've. This is some good news if you like Airbnb. They, they expect to hit 500 million guest arrivals by the end of the first quarter of this year. So that'd be a hundred million new guest arrivals at Airbnb properties since the last time they published that total in August of 2018. And I know, I know a fellow who is traveling around the world um, throughout Asia and Africa with his family. And he's publishing things on Instagram and so forth. And, and he, he published this photograph of him and his family in this gorgeous, well-appointed sitting room in an Airbnb in Egypt. And it was like $35 a night. And it came with this gorgeous, uh, I think it was like a lunch spread or something or, or breakfast. And, you know, he said the food was fresh and delicious and the place was gorgeous, had bedrooms and a, and a big sitting room that they all took this photograph in. So the news isn't all bad. 
Um, and they're one of several, you know, so-called unicorn businesses, right? Private, usually technology startups, um, gearing up for a, uh, it's, this one is actually gearing up for a public debut for, for a public offering. I'm not saying it's a great business and that I would invest in it, but I'm just trying to give you guys some good news because we had so much bad news. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's some good news there. All right. I'm very excited about this week's guest. Uh, his name is Aaron Edelheit. Aaron is the CEO and founder of Mindset Capital. That's a private investment firm. And after being one of its first investors, Aaron was also the chief strategy officer of Flow Technologies. And he helped the company grow from pre-revenue startup to raising $28 million and launching in over 500 Home Depot stores. In his previous role as CEO of the American Home, Aaron founded and grew a company from 16 rental homes to one that owned 2,500 single-family rental homes, and it was sold in April 2015 for $263 million to a publicly traded real estate investment trust. Aaron also founded and ran a successful money management firm, Sabre Value Management, from 1998 to 2011. In 2018, Idea Press published Aaron's first book, The Hard Break, The Case for a 24-6 Lifestyle. The book makes the case for taking one day a week off from work, email, and smartphones for a more productive, healthier, happier, more creative life. And Aaron's been featured and quoted in all the big publications, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Bloomberg, CNBC, among others. He's given lectures on business and entrepreneurship in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. Welcome, Aaron Edelheit. Thank you for being here, sir. Thank you so much for having me. So, Aaron, um, I'd like to talk about your book first, and then maybe we'll talk about, um, you know, whatever investment ideas are in your mind these days. And I encourage everyone listening to read Aaron's book, The Hard Break. I read it, loved it, underlined it, read it again. And Aaron, I wonder if we could if we could just start at the beginning. Um, you know, in the beginning of the book, you talked about a really difficult time in your life. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit and what prompted you ultimately to write this book. Yeah, well, so thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the show. I, I really, I appreciate it. And um, so I'm a workaholic and I'm driven in ways that I'm not sure that I fully understand. And uh, with today's technology and the information flow and the access to information, uh, someone like me, who's a workaholic, um, work is infinite. You know, it never ends. There's always more to learn. There's always more to do. There's always more to accomplish. Um, and so, you know, very early in my career, when I started managing money, I experienced tremendous success. From uh, 98 to 2002, normally associated the dot-com crash and a um, a very tough time for people. I actually averaged about 25% annualized returns. Nice. And uh, yeah, no, it was a wonderful time. Very exciting. I was, you know, king of the world. And then um, not having the maturity or experience to realize that everyone underperforms, especially after such a strong period of outperformance, especially when markets change. Um I, I started underperforming and a series of things, kind of bad, bad things just happened to me. It was, you know, I got sick. The doctor said nothing was wrong with me. And, um, I got into a relationship and it, you know, we broke up and then I had took on a business partner and we started fighting and business performance started suffering. And I, uh, I, it wasn't really until I started getting out of that that I started. I, my first thought was, I'm going to double down. I'm going to double and I'm going to triple down and work even harder. Um, and after a while, I realized my business results were not, um, they, they weren't improving. And so really out of desperation, I thought to myself, well, maybe I just need to carve out and give myself a little break. And it wasn't until I started that break and I literally started with baby steps. Like it's kind of crazy to think like 
I would turn my phone off on Friday night right before I went to bed. I'd try to make it till noon the next day. And it seemed like this Herculean task, right? And then eventually, after a couple of months, I built that up to um, going for a full day. And it transformed my life. Transformed my personal life, my business life, my business returns started improving, my mental outlook. And uh, so then, and, and, and do you know what the returns were that drove me to like this dark despair in 2003? Well, you, uh, read, you, you, you I, mentioned I this in down, the book. Go ahead and tell us. Yeah, I was I was down five percent. Yep. <laughs> so it's like just to, just to show you the, the, the kind of the non-rational state I was in, um, and uh, and so that really helped me in 2008 when the world felt like it was literally coming to an end, and I had while it was very difficult and hard. Out of that, I started saying, well, hey, where are there opportunities? What, what, how can I think creatively? And it's in the, the tough, turbulent times, instead of falling apart, I started, um, started looking and I kind of uncovered the opportunity to buy single-family homes, fix them up, and rent them out. Even though I had no experience, I had never bought a home before 2008. And so for me, the reason, and, and then I went through this, and I described in the book, I went through this crazy experience of going from 16 rental homes to 2,500. And one year I bought 2,000 homes individually. We went up and down and had to like, you know, the, the story is when we finally sold the company and I looked back and I, I said to myself, one, I could, there's no way I could have survived this experience if I didn't take a day off. If I didn't, um, and if I wasn't able to process, not be CEO Aaron, but just be Aaron and breathe one day a week. And I saw all this work behavior inside the company, around the company that was both good and bad, and a lot of pain and suffering from this belief that you need to put, kill yourself, that you need to burn yourself out. And I see a lot of, I was reading a lot of stuff out there, especially in startup culture and entrepreneurs of Wall Street, that you need to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this is the price you have to pay for success. And I said, no, that's actually not the price you have to pay for success. And I spent three and a half years researching and interviewing, you know, some of the, you know, incredible companies and executives and uh, people out there that actually attribute their success to not going down that path. Um, you know, companies like Chick-fil-A, which is closed every Sunday, to venture capitalist Brad Feld, who takes a digital Sabbath. Um, and there's 200 footnotes in the book. Uh, I actually had to remove dozens of them from all the studies and research that shows that the way that we're interacting with technology and working is not beneficial in any Yeah, I was, I was fascinated, Aaron, by all of the little details that you put in there about various studies. I, I totally agree. It's, it's one of the wonderful aspects of the book. For example, if you don't mind us kind of discussing one of them, this thing called sure, the Zagarnik effect. Yes. Um, so this is the tendency to dwell upon and refuse to let go of any task that has not been finished. And Zagarnik was someone who did some research and found out that people were twice as likely to remember uncompleted tasks as completed ones. And I identified with that right away. And it's, it's part of, um, it seems like the, the electronic culture that you described, the always on culture feeds that, turns that into a gigantic problem. Does it not? You're, you're exactly right. And, and this is the problem. Modern work life, is a giant Zygarnik effect. Yeah. It's from Bluma Zygarnik, a Soviet psychologist who noticed that waiters could immediately remember uh, unfinished orders but had trouble remembering completed orders in a restaurant. And it's been duplicated a number of times. Um, and if you just think about the modern email and the tasks, there are always unfinished tasks. So this is part of that lure of 
technology of email, of notifications, that there's constantly someone to reach out to, to respond to, something to do. And that's why you're all always on the phone. And that's why it's so exhausting. But what they found is that one of the ways to kind of guard against the zygarnik effect is one way is just to write down what you have to do. But another one is to just shut off and say, for this period of time, I'm not allowed or I'm not going to respond. This is not the time for me to do my tests. I've written them down. So I remember I have to do them and I will get to them when I turn back on. So it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, the way that I view kind of the Sabbath and this day off, it's this, this incredible, wonderful tool has actually been around for thousands of years, but is act probably more valuable today than it's ever been. So another reason why I think it's a fantastic idea, um, and it's, you know, it's uh, I guess uh, Nassim Taleb would say this has Lindy effect, right? It's been around for thousands of years and would tend to be around for thousands more by the Lindy effect. But Human nature, as you sort of point out in the book, I think I took this one passage that way, human nature kind of, we we need a Sabbath or some kind of hard break because human nature sort of works against us and all the, you know, the self-helpers and the advice books, as you point out in the book, they kind of boil down to like, not only to working hard and telling you to work harder, but showing other people that you work harder. So there's this kind of social proof in it, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's insidious, isn't it? I mean, that's, and that's exactly how you know that something is wrong when you're, when it's more about, and this is what I found in my own experience is a lot of the work hours, a lot of the uh, behaviors have nothing to do with productivity has nothing to do with great output, creative output. It's about signaling, signaling to others your dedication to the organization, signaling how you're more virtuous because you're willing to sacrifice. And what we should care about today is outcome. We shouldn't care about, um, you know, the the struggle to get there In, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, signaling to others that you are that you are really, really grinding hard, and 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 there's just, just again, you know, part of the reasons why I, why I took three and a half years doing the research is I wanted to prove every single point that I make in the book. The idea is that this is the case for a twenty four six lifestyle, so I want to refute almost every you know, argument against that. And one of the most fascinating things that I found in the book was if you think about what makes people successful today, it is not about consuming more information. It's not about sending more emails. It's not about responding and grinding. What really success is about is, is, is thinking creatively. It is, it is, it is being innovative. And so you think about, well, how can you be more creative and more innovative? Whether you're in investments and you're thinking differently and in a divergent way than other people, whether you're creating new companies or inventing, whether you're even on, you know, in the arts. So the most fascinating thing is that when you're not working, when you're decompressing, when you're relaxing, daydreaming, um, there's a part of your brain called the default mode network that goes, this part of your brain goes into overdrive. And so what is the default mode network? Well, that's the part of your brain that processes information and experiences and tries to form patterns and gain understanding. And so what happens if you're working all the time? If you're glued to your phone, your computer, your email, you're actually not giving your brain a chance to process information and to form new patterns. And so you're actually hurting your chances to innovate and be creative and think differently. And so if you think about, you ever walk down the street and, or you're walking somewhere and then all of a sudden some solution to some problem or some idea hits you, or you're in the shower, the proverbial idea in the shower. Right. Why does this happen when you're supposedly not even thinking about it? It's because you don't know it, but there's a part of your brain that's processing. 
So the more chances you can give to actually decompress and to, to give your brain a break, the more chances you are going to come up with these solutions and ideas. Uh, you know, I, that's a great point. I feel very lucky in my life because I studied music. I was a, a music major in college and a, and a classical guitarist. And my teacher said, you know, don't if you practice four hours a day, don't practice one time. Practice two or three or four times a day and take breaks in between uh, for that exact reason. And I've tended to carry that through. And of course, now I'm I'm doing a lot of writing in, in my current job with Stansberry. And I've just found that it's it's sort of like um, the problem with some of these things. It's like Warren Buffett says, you know, you can't get a baby in one month by making nine women pregnant. You know, it takes nine months and that's all there is to it. And that's the same thing. Your brain just needs time to process. And if you don't take a break, you don't get it. So, Aaron, there's a point you make in here, though. And you started by saying that you're a driven, ambitious guy. And there's an interesting point that I thought you made in the book. It was kind of work-life balance for the driven, ambitious person. And you said very wisely, I thought, don't try to balance it. Instead, separate it. So I can, I can, I can hardly imagine what you're like six days a week. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, that's exactly right. I just think this idea that you're trying to balance, and and this comes from my own experience and talking to lots of people, um, both during when I was researching the book and after I wrote, wrote the book, is uh, if your phone's on and you're getting emails. Can you really be there with your family? I know I can't. I'm incredibly distracted. And there's actually a lot of research. There's a wonderful uh, uh, article in The Atlantic about this, that parents are actually spending more time than ever before with their children. But the quality of that time is garbage because they're so distracted by all of the technology. And I know that when I'm playing with my daughter, my five-year-old daughter, and uh, I go to turn on her favorite song or I go to take a picture of her because she's being very cute. And um, I all of a sudden look at, oh, I have an email. Oh, someone's texting me. And immediately I'm down a rabbit hole. And, and in literally five or seven seconds, my daughter will turn to me and say, Papa, will you play with me? My first thought is, well, I am playing with you. But she knows that... I, that she doesn't have my full attention. So uh, the quality of when my Saturday comes around, my phone isn't on. I am completely there for her. And the quality of interactions, the, the, the quality of conversations with my wife, um, it's just very, very different. There isn't that pull uh, to see who, what's there, what's, you know, and if I'm addicted to my phone just as much as everybody else, if not more so. Um, and so it's really about, you know, um, it's about not being distracted. And, you know, I'm an investor, right? And you want to invest in the long term and the things that matter. So it's making sure you're investing in good companies. You're investing in your health, exercising, trying to sleep, et cetera, but also your relationships, the relationships in our lives are the most important things. They are what give us satisfaction. They give us happiness. Um, and so for me, this is just an, another way to think about carving out time so that you can invest in your relationships and you're not balancing. You, when you work, you work. When you're not working, you're not working. And, and you know, if you look in the sports world, the sports world, and the arts, the music world, is completely aligned on this. When you look at like LeBron James or how people, any kind of athletic pursuit, it is complete focused practice and complete focus. And when they're not, they're off. And there are many examples from uh, in my book. Uh, you know, my, my, one of my favorites is, I think uh, LeBron James calls it, Zero dark uh, 
30 or something. And when playoff time comes, the phone's gone. There is no phone in his life when it's playoff time. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I noticed, too, um, I mean, there, there's so many aspects to this. Um, you know, you talk about uh, in the book, like, just sort of overall benefits in your life and 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 health and the studies like, you know, I could spend an hour, it looks like, just quoting all of the studies about the toll that, you know, overwork takes on your health and family and the benefits you get from from taking a break. It, I, I mean, I, I, w- I wouldn't even know where to begin. I'm sure you have a favorite, but wow, it's just one after another, after another, after another. In, in, and there are studies yeah, I mean, with women, there are studies with men. Yeah. Everybody, every, overwork is bad for everybody all the time. And yet, as a society, we, as a society, we don't like to take vacations. That was one of the findings of the book. We don't like to take vacations. Why don't we like to take vacations? Well, you know, it goes back to the whole, the point of the book was, you know, I think everybody kind of knows, like, hey, working, being on your phone all your time isn't good. Right. And it's not surprising to people that there's health uh, problems. Like you're a much greater likelihood to have a heart attack, to get injured, to have mental health issues, all of that. Everyone would be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. To me, right. But I think the point that I wanted to make is not only are you getting all those negative externalities, but you're actually not getting what you want. Like you want what you want is we want to achieve. We want to provide for our family. We want to succeed. You know, and it's actually going to hurt you. That that was the point. And so you mentioned vacation about not taking vacation. So, you know, there's all these studies that you know just how good vacation is for you. And then we're reading in the Wall Street Journal stuff like workcations. I'm just like, no, <laughs> you know. And it goes back to the whole creativity and innovation piece. Like, literally, one of the best, most imaginative, most innovative Broadway plays musicals to come out in decades. Hamilton. How was it created? How was it founded? Well, it was only when Lin-Manuel Miranda decided to go on vacation and he was going through the airport bookstore and picked up Ron Chernow's Hamilton book. And it was when he was on vacation reading this massive book that he started thinking and saying, whoa, how, this is, I mean, think about who would come up with, I'm going to come up with a musical about a, the treasury secretary and I'm going to have a multiracial cast rapping. Like you have to be crazy to think of that. Yeah. If, if he had pitched that to me, I would have said, no, thank you. Next. Yeah. You're like, how is, wait, what? You know? So, so this is, this is the whole point is that if you want to really, you know, really think differently and, and really achieve you know, but then there's the whole productivity. There's decades of research that shows that once you work past 55 hours a week, it's garbage. There's no difference in productivity. And once you work past 70 hours a week, for a couple of weeks, your productivity starts to plunge until a couple of months. You are become less productive than 40 hours, uh, a, a person working 40 hours a week. You're more likely to get sick. You're going to make mistakes. Um, you're gonna, you're just gonna really struggle. We all kind of intuitively know this. You know, one of the reasons I think people do this, or one of the ways they justify it, not the reason, one of the ways they justify this is, you know, we all have heroes, right? And, you know, they, we, we point to people like, uh, you know, Warren Buffett, everybody, you know, he famously kind of works constantly and says he's tap dancing to work and it's a lot of fun and, and, uh, you know, just any any creative person um, that you could name, even, you know, like Leonardo da Vinci or Steve Jobs or any of these guys um, in history who have done something remarkable. Well, da Vinci is a great example, actually. There, there's a part in my book um, how uh, his patron is is literally is quoted as, you know, yelling at him, get back to work. Why is it taking you so long to finish what I paid for? And Da Vinci says, hey, sometimes I have to go for a walk and I need time off. I'm paraphrasing. 
But the teacher was super upset with him because he was taking so long creating the Last Supper. Now, look back in time, literally one of the great masterpieces of all of humanity, and the guy who commissioned it has said, why aren't you working harder? Do we care how the work habits of Da Vinci, or do we care that literally he created a masterpiece? Yeah, well, you sort of beat me to the punch. I was That's where I was headed. I mean, Jobs took off and went on extended vacations with his kids and all of that, and they couldn't be who they were without without taking a break, I guess. Yeah, but then there are other examples. You know, I don't know if it's related or whatever, but, you know, we, we highlight, we put on pedestals these people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And this is another reason I wrote the book. And these people are truly exceptional people, right? They're, they're big outliers. Right. And they work and their dedication to their companies. And we see this. And I highlight a number of examples of people like that. But... Look at their personal lives. You know, you know, divorce, multiple marriages, you know, real ups and downs and roller coasters. And, you know, I wrote this book really to be like, hey, is it possible to be successful and try to achieve while still having a family life and still spending time with your family and investing in those relationships? Now, I have no idea if the, you know, a Sabbath or anything like that could have, you know, would have been. But but I see this, and I, I don't. I personally don't want to, you know, go after a strategy where I don't get to spend much time with my kids, or I become estranged from my wife. And you know, this is another reason. Like, isn't it possible to do both? Right. Uh, that's a good question because uh, to make it more concrete for an investor, you know, would Amazon perform the way it does if people weren't driven and working all the time or would it be even better if they you know kind of instituted a hard break policy company-wide well, look i don't know um, because you gave numerous examples of people who who were working for companies there's the guy the facebook guy you know he says he, he says you know he wish he had slept more hours and exercised he doesn't wish he had worked harder that's exactly right so dustin moskowitz looks back he's one of the co-founders of facebook with regret. He has ongoing health issues because of his work habits, of, of how he treated himself. He, he looks back and says, I was a terrible boss, that I made lots of mistakes. So he restarted a company called, and when he started a new company afterwards, it's called Asana. Very remarkably, it's a productivity tool company. It is ranked, I think, the number one company to work for in the country, according to Glassdoor, number one or number two. And his work, the work rules, and you're done at like five. Like, it's a very different company. And he's, it's being very successful. I think he just raised money at a three or $4 billion valuation. So he's showing that you can be successful in a company. You can do well by by not grinding people into in, into the ground, by not grinding yourself into the ground. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm sure everyone is. So, Aaron, listen, let's, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I want to talk, you, you uh, forwarded me, you know, kind of one of your latest investment ideas, uh, a publicly traded company called Blue Rock Residential, the ticker symbol is BRG. And, uh, you know, we've got five minutes or so here. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about it. So what's really interesting is, you know, I stopped managing money in 2011. And, uh, and, and what's really interesting about Blue Rock Residential is that I think it's an example. One, there's, there's research out there. I think O'Shaughnessy Asset Management put out research that the, the REIT market, real estate investment trust market, is very inefficient. And it's driven in ways that uh, creates a lot of opportunity for uh, inefficiency. And so what was really interesting is last year, uh, in October, a, uh, someone filed a 13D. And you file 13D when you acquire more than 5% of a company's stock and you mean to kind of agitate for change. And the company filed a 13D, and in very vague language, 
said, hey, you know, the company is being operated right. And, oh, yeah, we offered a substantial premium to buy the company and we were rejected. And then we increased our offer and we offered again and it was rejected. So we pulled our offer and we want, we think the company should be sold. And, and, and that was it. There were no articles. There were no research reports. And very remarkably, the stock was kind of flat for a couple of months. It you know, went up and down. It went down initially. And I looked at it and I couldn't believe. And I know that we're seeing that the market's becoming more automated, more quantitatively invested, more ETF related. And I realized that none of these computers, none of these uh, automated strategies are reading 13 Ds. Um, and so it actually makes me very bullish that you have a lot of fun, fun, slow driven investment and compared to maybe, you know, seven, eight, 10 years ago, where you had a lot of people focused on companies like this, you wouldn't have this just kind of ignored. Um, and so the, I, what, what's happening right now, what I believe what's happening with uh, Blue Rock Residential is you have a company that is, uh, that owns apartments pretty boring business in places like Austin, Texas, you know, Orlando, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, all very fast growing uh, demographically driven markets that are going to be attractive for a while. And you have another, uh, uh, someone who now is in the stock who wants to buy them. The company pays uh, approximately like a 6.4% dividend. And basically, the idea is while this plays out, and I don't know how it's going to play out, uh, but I believe the company's in play. And while the, this works itself out, you get the clip dividends, a pretty significant dividend in a relatively safe company. Um, and so it's a small cap. So, you know, and, and, and also know I own it. So I'm talking my own book. Um, but what I like about it is that you basically, I get to sit and eat popcorn clipping dividends while I wait to see what this, this company that is trying to buy the company does. Right. And you're, um, the stock's around $10 and 20 cents today. And you're guessing, it looks like in, in the report that you sent me, um, you, you were having to guess at the buyout offers and you guessed eleven fifty and $12 per share. So pretty good premium to where we are now. Why did you have to guess? Well, because they didn't put the numbers in the 13D. They just said we offered a substantial premium to uh, um, to the 60-day moving average. I believe that's correct. And so I just guessed, well, what's the percentage? And I, and, uh, and I guessed 20%. And when it was trading, it was trading at 955. So... 20% of that would be about 11.50. And then if you increased your offer from there, maybe it's $12. And, you know, again, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know, but basically, you know, there, I believe that what's going to play out is that either this company or another company or something's going to happen. And management probably feels pressure now because the stock IPO in 2015 at $15. So it's been a very it's been a disappointing investment if you've been part of this uh, since the beginning, and um, so you know this is a pretty opportune time. So management is probably going to start doing some shareholder shareholder friendly actions as well to respond uh, to this you know to a, a buyer trying to come in and agitate for change or buy the company. So, of course, I always, being a value guy myself, when I see, as you point out, you know, a lot of apartment REITs trading with uh, yields below 4%, why are we over 6% here? Well, one, I think that this is a small cap. Two, I believe that the company in the past has disappointed investors. Um, also, I don't believe that management is pursuing the right strategy. Um, they are issuing, uh, they are financing the company by issuing expensive preferreds, uh, preferred equity that at expensive interest rates. And I think that Wall Street's kind of gotten fed up with it um, and kind of discarded this. A lot of times, you know, Wall Street will be like, oh, 
this company, it's an underperformer, I'm just going to discard it. And if you also look how REITs are uh, generally focused on in terms of analyst coverage, in terms of uh, investment flows, um, the, the top 25 REITs, I think, get you know half of all the investment uh, dollars and all in almost all of the research. And so you have this um, small cap REIT that's you know about a 250 million dollar market cap. And, you know, so small. It's like, why would you? Why would any large investor focus on this, or, or, or any analyst? Very interesting. That's a very interesting situation. Um, and I can tell you, even just sort of looking at the numbers now, it's kind of not quite big enough even for my newsletter. If I recommended it, the stock would probably go up 50% in two minutes. So Yeah, I no, I mean, that's not part of the opportunity. Yeah, and so what I'm trying to look for is, you know, do I think this is going to go to like 50? No. To me, it's like, what's the downside of this? The downside is maybe I just earned a, a small dividend and it doesn't really go anywhere. But the upside, I think, is, you know, I don't know, 30%, 25%. In a potentially, you know, kind of uh, short period of time here, maybe in a year or two or three or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and during the same time, do I have to worry about, you know, the, the you know, uh, the tariffs and the craziness in the market and, you know, to me, it's like I'm looking for low-risk investments. I'm looking for the singles and doubles. You know, this is not like a home run or grand slam. This is something that I can invest in, feel confident in, and, um, you know, and, and won't. I, this isn't, you know, the, the, the wild ride that, uh, that a lot of the market's been on the last couple of months. Hey, I, I hear you loud and clear. Believe me, I mean, we're, we're very, it's looking very end of cycle here and it's hard to find great deals and this looks like it might be one of them. Aaron, thank you so much for being here. This has been wonderful. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Happy to come on anytime. Great, great. Maybe, uh, maybe when, uh, you know, uh, Blue Rock does a deal, we'll uh, have you back one to talk about it or something. I don't know. That sounds great. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you real soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Okay. It is time for the mailbag once again. And remember, your feedback is important to the success of this show. And you can email us with any questions or comments that you have at feedback at investorhour.com. We read them all and we try to respond to every single one, even the hurtful ones. <laughs> so... We have actually three bits of mailbag today, and let's start with the first one, which is from Jason L. Jason L. says, just wanted to let you guys know I have really enjoyed the recent podcast with Dan Ferris. I'd heard a few interviews with Dan before the recent string of podcasts, and I always thought he was just a really negative guy who had a bad outlook on everything. But now that I've heard him on the podcast for several weeks in a row, I realize that he's just really committed to value investing. It's a good reminder that one of the strengths of Stansberry Research is that there are so many analysts that have different views on the current state of the market and the best way to invest over time. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you, Jason L. Um, I, I, I have to address this idea of being a really negative guy who has a bad outlook and everything. Um, you know, I promise you, Jason, that if you actually knew me, um, you, you, you wouldn't think that. And I don't know where this idea came from, frankly. It's, uh, um, you know, folks at Stansbury sometimes call me a curmudgeon or something, but, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't see it. I think I'm a pretty kind of upbeat guy. I mean, you got to pay attention to risks in investing. And like, you know, I, this email is part of the reason why I was trying to deliver some good news. Uh, and we talked about Airbnb, you know, whatever that might have meant to you earlier in the program. But, um, you know, I, I, I hear you, Jason, and I, and I should acknowledge that Jason, Jason now realizes that uh, I'm not a guy with a bad outlook. So um, thank you for that, Jason. Okay, here's one from Andy G. Andy G says, Dan, 
Just wanted to send you a note and thank you for the recent podcast episode with Shane Parrish. That was one of the best conversations that I've heard on any podcast. I find the podcast series very interesting and helpful and really enjoy when you introduce listeners to new people and ideas like those that Shane discusses with Farnham Street, that's Shane's website. Excellent job and thank you again for the work you do in the podcast. Boy, there's lots of good stuff in the mail today. You are quite welcome, Andy G. We're happy to do it. And I totally agree. I could have kept Shane Parrish on the phone for hours. That guy's head is just, it's like an encyclopedia of the best ideas of all history and humanity. And you can see it on his website. You know, you can see this guy, he writes like all that stuff or, you know, like the overwhelming majority of it. And it's really great. I mean, he's got over 100, we discussed over 100 mental models, you know, these different ways of thinking about things on his website. Uh, Just really an amazing guy. I totally agree. That was last week's episode. And by all means, I strongly encourage everyone to to listen into that one. All right. One more. And this is from Harold S. Harold S. says, hi, Dan. Nothing is better than walking my dog and listening to your latest podcast. Boy, that's nice. Thank you. Thank you, Harold. Your financial guidance to the individual investor is simply superb. You recently highlighted how individual companies reaching landmark valuations, i.e. Apple at $1 trillion, was an indication of a market getting extremely high. A previous landmark valuation for the first company to reach $500 billion was Microsoft back in March 2000. In March 2000, one could have purchased 2.457 billion ounces of gold for $500 billion, right? So Microsoft's market cap at that time. As of January 11, 2019, the market capitalization of Microsoft is $797.7 billion for a gain of some 60% over some 19 years. As of January the 11th, 2019, Microsoft valued at $797.7 billion will only now purchase 619.4 million ounces of gold, or only 25% of what it would purchase back in March 2000. My question to you, over the past 19 years, has Microsoft gained 60% or has it lost 75% of its value? My answer explains why I'm buying more each day of Extreme Value's best gold company, as it trades 13% below the buy up to price. Actually, 15% below today, Harold. Thank you, Harold says. And you're most welcome, Harold. Wonderful question. I think I can help iron this issue out for you, though. By You're basically, you're, you're trying to value Microsoft in gold or gold in Microsoft shares, either way. But what you're really doing is expressing gold in dollars. That's, that's all that's happening here. The price of gold in dollars changed over that time. And this change in the in the value of Microsoft, I promise you, Microsoft is a better business today than it was in 2000. Uh, it's, you know, it's got a wider moat. It's a better business. It's a cash gushing. It's just, it's one of the greatest businesses that's ever been created. You know, there are well over a billion users of, of Microsoft Office in the world. And, you know, they have no reason to ever do anything different. Uh, you know, whether it's on their phone or on their laptop or where, wherever it is, you know, those products are embedded in our working lives. So the intrinsic value of Microsoft has has risen uh, substantially, I'd say. And, and it is a great business. And so the intrinsic value is one thing. The price of gold in dollars is a separate thing. So we don't want to... Um, we don't want to make the mistake of going from the price of gold in dollars through to the intrinsic value of Microsoft, which um, you know has certainly not lost any of its value uh, in the time frame that you describe. But it's a good question, and you made me think, and you uh, you provided our listeners with uh, with a fun little exercise, and I thank you for it, Harold. And that's another podcast, folks. Um, that, you know, we, we love doing this every week. I, I, this is like one of the best gigs I've ever had in my life, and I hope you'll just keep tuning in. So be sure to check out our recently revamped website where you can listen to all of our episodes and see transcripts from the shows. 
and you can enter your email to make sure you get all the latest updates, just go to that same address, www.investorhour.com. Well, that's it for this week. Love us, hate us, just don't ignore us. And thanks for listening. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email at feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is provided for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network.